Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Good morning, everyone. We're going to keep... Uh... Going to keep going on our series on Romans here for those of you who are new. We're working our way through Romans and uh, verse by verse, but mostly chapter by chapter. So, the last few weeks we've gone through chapters five and six and seven. Last week we did chapter seven, and, uh, and uh, we just looked last week at the, this awesome truth, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, that uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, too, had struggles and that there's no condemnation for us in our struggles. And today we're going to start into Romans chapter 8, which is one of the most uh, exciting and uh, encouraging and powerful chapters in the Bible. We're going to have to break Romans 8 up a little bit because it's a very long chapter. So uh, I'm going to get through the first little chunk uh, today, and then uh, next week I'm not sure if I'll be able to take the rest, or we might have to do the rest in, in two more after that. But uh, I just want to, we'll just start with the reading, and, and uh, even though we're doing Romans 8 today, I'm going to start the reading this morning in uh, chapter 7, verse 15, and just for a little review, because it leads really the two chapters. Remember that, that uh, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, when the writers of Scripture wrote the Bible, they didn't uh, write with chapters and verses. They just wrote. And later on, uh, people came and put chapters and verses in to make it easier for us to find stuff. So chapter 7 and 8, aren't, were, when Paul wrote, they weren't two separate chapters, okay? He was just writing. And certainly, chapter 7 and 8 are certainly all part, one part of one big uh, argument and point that he's making. So uh, we're, gonna, we're working on chapter 8 today, just the first four verses, but I'm going to do the reading first in 7.15 just to remind us a little bit of where we're coming out of and what Paul's talking about, all right? So verse 15, Paul says this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Right? And so we talked at length about this last week. And uh, it's so powerful. I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this. Just to give us a little window into his soul that I think otherwise if we didn't have passages like this, we would just have this concept of a spiritual person as a person that is far beyond anything we could ever attain, as a person who does not struggle, who does not have temptation, who never, who never fails, who never falls. So I just, these, these are just precious verses, right? And then verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, and I'm sure we've all felt that many times, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." And then we get to chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring these words. And 2,000 years later, they still speak powerfully to our hearts. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the truths. Father, I'm praying today that your Holy Spirit, these truths we're talking about today have to do with spirit power. And so they can't just be, it's fine for me to explain them with words, but unless your Holy Spirit brings these things to life in our heart, they're nothing. And so I pray that you would bring, begin to bring Romans 8, these first four verses, alive in our experience and our practice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay? So again, last week, we looked at this fact that here in the present, we still struggle. We give our lives to Jesus. Now there's this war that goes on within us because the moment the Holy Spirit comes into me, I now have a part of me that wants to do right. I have a part of me that wants to live pure. I have a part of me that wants to love. I have a part of me that wants to live up to God's standard. And yet, still within the members of my body, within my brain and within my physical body, I have this law of sin that still works there. And so there's this, this war. And of course, we looked at last week, the important cornerstone of, of our hope is the future resurrection that one day Jesus will, in the future, deliver us from that war that battle that goes on inside of us between our desire to do good and our inability to do it, Jesus is going to end that inner battle someday. And that we should, we should set our eyes firmly on that day, on the resurrection. He'll deliver us from that, from this body of death. We'll have no more temptation. We'll have no more sorrow. We'll have no more sin. And we will finally be the people we want to be. We'll be filled with love. We'll shock ourselves. Okay? We'll be full of love. We'll be full of holiness. We'll be full of purity. Amazing. That's the future. The amazing thing is, as we talked about last week, just a quick review here as we move into Romans 8, is that, so Jesus knows that in the future what he's going to do, he knows in the present that we're not there yet. And so now in the present, in the future, our promise is we will be delivered from this, from this inner battle, from this temptation. In the present, Jesus says to us through his Holy Spirit, through Paul here in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now in the present no condemnation as we struggle. We're on our way to victory, and in the meantime, as we struggle along, there is no condemnation for us in our weakness because Jesus knows what he's going to do in us. He knows he hasn't done it yet, and so he doesn't, he's not mad at us for continuing to struggle. We can't help but continue to struggle. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is again really important because remember the flow of the argument in Romans. Uh, We went through, you know, we spent a lot of time in chapter 3 there, but remember that in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, okay, Paul goes into this lengthy discussion of justification. We've talked lots about justification in this series. This fact that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have now been forgiven of our sins and put in right standing with God. And it's an amazing truth. Now here's the thing. Without chapter 7 in Romans, that truth would be theoretical. It would just be a theoretical truth. It would be, wow, that's really neat, Paul, that Jesus you know, forgave us of our sins and put us in right standing with God. But it would, har- it, would be, it would be hard to actually believe it. When I'm in the midst of my struggle, when I'm in the midst of failing, when I'm in the midst of being weak, is it really true that I'm in right standing with God? Is it really true that what Jesus did in the past for, has forgiven my sins even now in the future while I continue to struggle? 
And so the important thing, a piece about Romans 7 is, Romans 3 through 6 is justification. You've been put in right standing with God. You have been forgiven of your sins. They've been wiped away. But in Romans 7, what Paul does is he takes this truth of justification from Romans 3 through 6, and he says, now I'm going to put this to the test of real life. And if it wasn't for chapter 7, I think we'd have a real hard time actually experiencing the truth of justification in the midst of our weakness. So what Paul does in chapter 7 is he takes chapters 3 through 6, this incredible truth about justification, and he, and he, and he puts it in the ringer of real life, and he says, does it hold 100% truth? Is it true even in the midst of my struggle, even in the midst of real life, where I have real weakness and real sins and real problems and I have bad months and bad years and bad weeks and bad days and I get impatient with the kids and I lose my temper and I cave into lust, does that justification that I'm in right standing with God and that I'm forgiven of my sins, does it hold true in the midst of my struggle? And the answer of chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ, is the answer that, yes, justification passes the test of real life. Justification passes the test of real life. That, yes, all those amazing truths of chapter 3 through 6 hold even in the midst of our struggle, even in the midst of our weakness, you are still, if you've given your life to Christ and you are pursuing him, then even in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your weakness, in the midst of failing and falling, you're still in right standing with, with, with God. You're still forgiven. The slate is clean. You're still right with him. And he sees you as righteous in Jesus. So vitally important. Now, of course, someone might argue, and many have argued or attempted because, again, in the flesh as human beings, we would love to take advantage of these truths. And so someone might argue, if I'm justified no matter what I do, I might as well just keep on sinning, right? That's, that's almost the fear. In fact, as preachers sometimes, we're almost afraid to preach it because it's like, what will people do if we tell them that justification holds even when they're weak? What's the motivation, right? What's the, the motivation to do right if I'm still justified even when I do wrong? And, and the thing you need to understand is if you're asking that question, if you, if you really do want to keep on sinning in order to take advantage of justification, then the truth is you probably were never saved to begin with. You've missed the point of salvation entirely. Because the point of salvation, we did, we did this, we talked about this in chapter 6, but again, a little bit of review heading into these promises of, of chapter 8. But the, 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 the thing we have to realize again is, what is salvation? A salvation is, I have decided to give my life to Christ. Which means, I have decided to die to a certain way of life. I've decided to die to the pleasures of sin. I've decided to die to my, to my pursuit of self and putting self in charge. So, if I want to take advantage of justification and say, I want to just keep sinning and, and still be justified, it shows that I've probably never gotten saved in the first place because being saved is giving up my life, is turning away from sin and saying, I'm dying to that. Now, here's the thing. Even if I choose to die to sin, I'm still going to fall into it. But I've made a choice. Do you see there's a difference there? There's a difference between... I've given my life to Jesus and I've said no to the sinful lifestyle, but I still struggle and fall into it. And thanks be to God, he's forgiven me. There's a total difference between that and 
I'm just going to keep living in my sins and enjoying them because he's forgiven me anyway. Those are two very different things. They are light years apart in God's eyes. One is under grace, one is not. So there's, there's an infinite amount of grace for weakness, for I want to follow Jesus, and, and I struggle. And there is not grace for someone who says, I actually just want my sin. I don't want to follow Jesus, but I'd love to be forgiven anyway. You, you, you can't... You can't take advantage of God that way. And again, this makes all the difference in how we struggle against sin. When you realize this, this makes all the difference in how we struggle against sin. We don't struggle against sin in an attempt to earn something with God. See, justification, okay, justification is Jesus did all the work and he put me in right standing with God and I couldn't do anything about that. Sanctification is now me moving forward out of that truth and growing in him and, and following him, and pursuing him, and him changing me. But justification has to start first. I don't struggle against my sin out of, I'm trying to earn something with God. No, no, no. If I, that's a heavy burden that nobody can carry, and you can't do it anyway. None of us can impress God. You know, I think of, uh, of, of my kids. Sometimes they want to, you know, like my son Charlie, he's seven, so he wants to show me, you know, how many chin-ups he can do, or, or how many push-ups, or something like that, right? So, He'll, and he'll be just amazed. You know, he can do like two or three, you know, and, and he's just pumped. And I, and I pretend to be amazed, but really, you know, two or three is not really that amazing, right? So he, it's very hard for him to actually impress me because I'm just further down, down the road than him. He's still little, right? Now think about us to infinite God. You, you can try as hard as you want. You'll never impress him in terms, of, in terms of earn his favor and blow him away with how amazing you are. It's impossible. So we don't struggle out of our sin in order somehow to earn something with him. We struggle out of our sin out of a place of 100% confidence that he's already done the work. He's already made me right with God, and now I struggle out of that. I'm not struggling out of, I need to earn something. I'm struggling out of gratitude. Thank you for what you've done. Now I'm pursuing you in love, and I keep falling. Shoot, sorry. And I keep going, but I'm not trying to earn something. That's a heavy burden. But the light burden is to realize that you are working hard to overcome your sin because you've already been forgiven and put in right standing with God. You're not trying to earn forgiveness. You've already been forgiven. You're working off of a base. You're not working in order to earn it. And so justification is the foundation for sanctification, all right? So very important. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We go to verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, this is one of those verses, we read it, and we get, you know, uh, you know, on the radio or something, they'll throw a verse on there, or someone will just, you know, put it up in their, in their, on a wall somewhere, and you kind of read it, and you just kind of get pumped up. That's a neat verse. But if you really think about this verse, it can actually be really depressing. Okay? So Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And you go, Yeah, he set us free from the law of sin and death. And then we actually meditate on this verse and we go, wait a minute, I'm still sinning. So does this mean I'm not saved? Have you ever been there? I've been there. I've read verses like this in the Bible before and gone, wait a minute, I still sin. So does that mean that verse 1 doesn't apply to me? Because it says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Wait a minute, but I haven't been set free from sinning, Okay. And none of us has, okay? In fact, that was all of chapter 7 telling us we haven't been set free from sinning. So what is Paul talking about in verse 2? He's not, he's not saying 
there's no condemnation in Christ because you've been set free from sinning, that would completely contradict everything he just said in chapter 7. Okay? So I want you to notice there again, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, not from sinning, but from the law of sin and death. What is this talking about, okay? The law of sin there, that word law in this sentence refers to uh, power or dominion, okay? He's not saying you've been set free from sinning. We just saw in chapter 7, we still struggle. So what have we been set free from? We've been set free from the law, almost like the law of gravity, the dominion and power of sin. Think about it this way, okay? Imagine uh, a, a hideous monster, this, this, this beast, okay? And it's got many tentacles and arms, and it's huge, very powerful. You can't resist it. And, and it's holding chains, and it's got tentacles, and this beast is sin, okay? And it's got its chains and its tentacles wrapped all around you, and it is slowly but surely, you just can't resist it. It's far too big. It's far too powerful, and it has got you so wrapped up in a thousand different ways, and it is pulling you in slowly but surely, and inevitably, and it's, and it's going to keep pulling you in, pulling you in, pulling you in until the day you die when it will devour you forever, okay? That is a little bit of the picture of you before Christ. You are completely enslaved to a power called sin that you cannot, under your own power, resist. Impossible. And eventually, it will own you for eternity. It's just pulling you in. It's got the chains. It's got the tentacles. It's huge. And it's just slowly pulling you in. You're just fully in the muck. Okay, then Jesus came along, and you gave your life to Jesus. What did Jesus do? Okay, he set you free from the law, the power, the dominion of sin and death. He came along, and he lopped off all of the arms and the tentacles that were holding you. Now, here's the thing. He went and lopped them all off, but you still have them all tangled around you. Okay, they're just not connected back to the beast. Beforehand, you were fully in the grip of the beast, and you were getting dragged in, and you were going to keep getting dragged into the day you died, and then you would be owned by sin and death for all of eternity in hell. Okay? But you gave your life to Jesus, and what did he do? He lopped off the arms. He lopped off every single one of the tentacles. He lopped them all off right at the source of that creature. Now, you've still got tentacles and chains uh, wrapped all around you and tangled around you, and you're stuck in the mud as far in as this beast had pulled you to that extent. And so you still have struggles. The sting of death continues on even after you've given your life to Christ. Some of those stingers went deep. Some of those tentacles were wrapped tight. But now the rest of your life, it's a totally different scenario. You're not inevitably being pulled into this monster of sin and death. You're not under his power anymore. Now you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. Jesus is right beside you in the mud. And the rest of your life, you get the joy of, with him, untangling chains and casting them off, and another tentacle here, and finally a sting gets pulled out there. You still struggle because those chains are still there. You're still entangled, but you're no longer under the power and dominion of the monster. You're now on your way out. It's a totally different way that you relate now to sin. You're on your way out. You're being cleaned up. Jesus is right beside you. You're getting untangled and unraveled slowly but surely. Depending, some of those chains and some of those tentacles are wrapped around you so tight and so tangled, it'll take your whole life. Some of them will be left there until after you die, and that's when they'll finally be gone. But your whole life now is you slowly, oh, and a leg came out of the muck. And another chain came off. And another tentacle and another, as we walk with Jesus, as we walk with Jesus, another stinger is out. And another one. And in that way, the moment you were saved, you were set free from the law, the dominion, 
You're no longer held by that beast, even though you still have some of these chains that need to be removed. Okay? Now, of course, I know the question some of you are asking because wrestling against sin, wrestling against sin can take, you know what, I'm just trying to figure out where I am in my notes. Am I getting ahead of myself here? I am getting ahead of myself. Let's just, uh, let's, t- let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's go to the next one. Okay, so he's delivered you from this beast called sin, but he's done something else. He hasn't just, he hasn't just lopped off the arms and the chains and the tentacles. He's also put you under a new law, okay? So you were fully held before by, by a creature far too strong for you. Couldn't resist him, okay? He lops off those chains. You're still entangled and you're, you're mucky and that's going to be a whole lifetime process of coming out of that. But in the meantime, he's also done something else and he's put the law of the spirit of life in you. There's a new law, okay? There's a new power that has dominion in your life, and that's the Holy Spirit, all right? The Holy Spirit is setting you free, and now he's inside of you. And just in the same way that previously this monster of sin and death was pulling you in until the day you would die, and it would own you for eternity. It was inevitable. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is not weaker than the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life, in fact, is stronger. So in the same way that originally you were so captured, it was inevitable that you would end in death and hell, in the same way it is now inevitable on the other side that there is now a power in you pulling you in a different direction, slowly and just as inevitably. If you walk with Jesus, this power is not less stronger than the power of sin, and it inevitably will lead to fully life and purity, and holiness, and resurrection. See, the Christian life actually is 100% supernatural. It's 100% supernatural. Um, when After you get saved, and you're set free from sin, and the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life and change you, it is, it is 100% supernatural. It is 100% beyond what you can do for yourself. Now, the thing is, I know that a lot of you, you've given your life to Christ and you look at yourself right now and you go, it sure doesn't feel supernatural to me. Right? It, it's like, okay, I, I kind of get the part about I was under the power of sin before. That power I can feel. I can feel that pull into sin and temptation. But I look at my life now and I gave my life to Christ 20 years ago, five years ago, two months ago, whatever, and I don't, how is this one supernatural? Because it, it feels pretty natural to me. It still feels like I have a lot of struggles it still feels like I, I, a lot of the things that I used to struggle with, I still struggle with. So how can you say it's a supernatural life? I feel like really not much has changed. And the reason we feel that way is because we have a, a wrong, a false definition of supernatural. Here's how we view supernatural. We view supernatural as interchangeable with the word instantaneous. So we view, then I'll just say it again, we view the word supernatural as that is kind of equal with the word instantaneous. So if something is supernatural in my life, if Jesus, if there's a supernatural power in my life, the way I would know that is the moment I would give my life to Christ, all of my temptations would automatically fall away. My problems would fall away. I would suddenly, rainbows everywhere, huge smile, full of love, just overbubbling me at all times, and I'm just completely a holy, resurrected, wonderful person in one instant. That's supernatural. To which I would just say, that is instantaneous. It is supernatural, and it's instantaneous supernatural. But here's the thing. You are going to end up 
that way. You are going to end up that way. I just said, we would view it as supernatural if all my temptations just fell off me, if I only ever wanted to do good, if I was flooded with love and patience and kindness and goodness. That would be, super, that would be supernatural, but we put the time constraint on it that it has to be instantaneous in order to be supernatural. And the thing you have to realize is everything that Romans is promising us is you are going to become that person. You are becoming that person already. If you're walking with Jesus, you are becoming that person. It's just not instantaneous, but the end result is assured. It is, we're going to see later in chapter 8, it is predestined. It is for sure. It is assured. So how is that any less supernatural? It's just not instantaneous. You say, well, I just like instantaneous. I mean, really. I, I don't like that it's not instantaneous. I really don't like that it takes years and years and years. And I don't feel a lot of the time like something is happening. So why would God not just do it like this? Like, why not? He's the creator of the universe. He is doing it in us. He will complete it in us. So why, instead of taking 50 or 60 or 70 or 20 years, why doesn't he do it in a second? And answer that question, let me share an analogy. Imagine that me and my son, Charlie, are going to build a Lego set together, which we do from time to time. Imagine if I had the power as his dad, which I don't, just in case you're wondering, but imagine if I had the power as his dad to just snap my finger and the Lego set is instantaneously done. Would I ever use that power other than to totally freak him out? Okay? <laughs> I might do it for that reason once or twice if I had the power. But should I? Maybe a better question is, should I use that power? Uh, would I use that power? Absolutely not. Okay? What does instantaneous do? So Charlie comes, Dad, let's spend an hour or two together building this Lego set. You bet, son. Snap. It's done. Well, what are we going to do now? I guess you go play the Lego set, and I'll go upstairs and do some work. Okay? If I do it instantaneously, what have I just missed? Relationship. I have absolutely, utterly missed the whole point of doing the Lego set together. See, in, let me tell you something about instantaneous. Instantaneous is not relational. Well, what's the point of having time anyway? Do you know that we're going to get to enjoy perfection forever? So God's just going to snap his fingers, whammo, now what? Well, I guess we'll enjoy perfection. We will enjoy it forever. But in the meantime, we have this idea. See, our lives are so short. If I, you know, you know, to us, a year is, you know, when you're a kid, that's long. As you get older, it gets less long. But 10 years is a long time. 50 years is a really long time. Let's just think about how old God is, though. Okay? He is billions and billions and billions of years without end old. He's called in the Bible, Ancient of Days. You know what the name Ancient of Days speaks to me very deeply? I'm not in a hurry. He's the ancient of days. He's not in a hurry. He is eternal. He's not in a rush to get from here to there. He enjoys the process. In fact, it's his glory and it's his joy to work with us and to work in us. He's not in a hurry. And it's in the relationship. See, there's something soldiers know. When soldiers fight in a battle together, there's a bond often that they talk about between soldiers who have fought in a battle together. There is a bond that forms in battle that can't be formed in a coffee shop, right? And often men who have, or, or women who have fought in a battle together, they'll have a lifelong bond with each other that is so deep, that is, that is so precious. Even if they don't see each other for years, there is a love there that can only be forged in the face of death in hard times, okay? It can't be forged in a coffee shop. Now think about this with God. Okay? He wants to go deep with you. 
He wants you to learn to trust in him. He does not want to snap his fingers. He does not want to just get to know you at the coffee shop level. He wants to get to know you in the wildernesses, in the storms, in the darkness. So he says, daughter, son, 20 years might seem long to you right now. 50 years might seem long to you, but it is so small in the grand scheme of things. And this is your chance to learn to trust me. This is your chance to get to push into me. This is your chance to get to walk with me in places where, it's, where you're thirsty, in places where you're hurting, in places where you're scared, in places where you're frustrated. That's where you're going to build a relationship that's going to go down deep, and we're going to celebrate it in perfection for all of eternity. But we don't need to be in a hurry to get to eternity, amen? So it is inevitable. He has lopped it off. He's lopped off the chains, and now it's his glory and his joy to sit beside us in the mud and begin to unwrap together and unravel. And in the meantime, he's put this spirit inside of us, and that spirit is supernatural. He usually doesn't work instantaneously, but he is at work in your life. And so rather than looking at, do I feel supernatural right now? Look back five years. Look back 10 years, and you will see change. If you're walking with Jesus, if you're not walking with Jesus, if you are reveling in worldliness and apathy, perhaps you won't see much change. But if even in some weak way you just have a desire to walk with him and, and you are reaching out to him in some weak way, even with many struggles, even with worldliness and all that sort of stuff, you will see change because it's inevitable and it's supernatural. It is. So I look back on my life 10 years ago I am far, far, far from perfect. You can talk to my wife. Actually, don't talk to her, but I'll just, you can just realize I'm not, I'm far from perfect. But if I look back 10 years, I'm a totally different person today than I was 10 years ago. I mean, I just, I think different about life. I empathize better with people. I care a lot more. I trust God more. I feel less confident in myself. I feel a lot weaker at times, but I just, because I, I just feel like I need to depend on him more. I'm a different person. I go back five years, 10 years, even a year ago, I can see changes. That's supernatural. You and I can't do that. But he is at work in us. It just isn't instantaneous, and we can't expect it to be instantaneous. This is our chance to get to walk with him. There is a supernatural power in your life, and it is working, and it is changing you. You have to believe that. You have to hold on to that. And someday you will see that it is absolutely fully true. But we keep going. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus came and he condemned sin in the flesh. Now what does that mean, he condemned sin in the flesh? Um, see, because there's, there's two different ways we can use the word condemned. One is, one way that we use the word condemned is I point at you and I laugh or I point at you and I say, what you're doing is wrong. So you might be doing something wrong, and so I point at you and I say, what you're doing is wrong, or what you're doing is stupid, or what you're doing is filthy, or what you're doing you should be ashamed of. I don't do anything about it. I just point out to you what's wrong. That's condemning, okay? Now, is that what Jesus did when he came in the flesh? Did he condemn? Did he point at us and say, you're doing it all wrong? No, that's what the law did. That's what the law did. The law, God gave us the law to point out to us what we're doing wrong. So the law came out and said, that's adultery. You should be ashamed of it. You're an adulterer. And we went, oh, you're right. That's condemnation. 
We were condemned, but there's nothing there to help you change. It just points out what you're doing wrong. But it says here that what Jesus did in his flesh was something, if you look at the top there, verse 3, was something the law could not do. So the law condemned us in the sense of pointing out the wrong, but Jesus came in the flesh to condemn sin in a way the law could not do. So what sense is the word condemned being used there? And there it's more, there's, an, there's another sense we can use the word condemned, and that is in the sense of like a judge or a king. So a judge or a king, they have the power to take a criminal or someone and to condemn them to death, let's say, right? A judge or a king can do that. They can condemn someone to life in prison. They can condemn someone to death. They can condemn someone to be, you know, you know banished from the kingdom or whatever. That, that form of condemn isn't the form of condemn of I'm pointing out something you're doing wrong. It's actually passing sentence on a person to, for something that they've done, okay? So what Jesus did in the flesh is he did the second one. By coming in flesh, he passed sentence on sin, and he said, you are defeated, you are destroyed, your power. This is the part where I talked about before in the picture, this beast had you with all of its tentacles and chains and arms, and it was pulling you in. When Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, he came in the flesh, and he cut off the arms. That's, where, that's what he did. That's right there where he destroyed the power and dominion that sin had over us. He condemned sin in the flesh. He destroyed its power, its sting. And the important thing about this is it has to, this truth has to reach into our identity. This really has to reach into our identity because for so many of us, we define ourselves by our struggles. We define ourselves by our struggles. So many people, I pray with people, they define themselves by their eating disorder. They define themselves by their anxiety. They define themselves by their depression. They define themselves by their sexual temptations, whatever it is. They define them, this is me, because this is what I struggle with. But the thing you have to understand is, Jesus came in the flesh to condemn sin in the flesh, to condemn its dominion over you, to destroy its power over you, which means that, yes, you still, some of those stingers are in so deep, you may be harassed by a particular temptation for, for years yet, or maybe even the rest of your life. In some cases, there's so many, we won't be fully perf perfected before the, the resurrection. But you, so you might have that stinger, you might have a temptation, you might still struggle from time to time with something, but you are not defined by it. It no longer owns you. So you're not that. You're not the depression. You're not the homosexuality. You're not whatever it is. You're not the anxiety. You're not defined by the things you struggle with because Jesus condemned that thing when he came in the flesh and he died on the cross. So you're not that. Amen. So now I wish, so I preach this. I hopefully at the end of this message, I'm going to do something with prayer and, and you're going to get that because I don't, I, I'm, we're just going to keep going now into verse four, but that truth right there is absolutely revolutionary. We need to sit on it for a bit. It's, it's not just, you know, Oh, okay, well, that felt good when he said that. And I go on with my life and I just keep going. And this is in the Bible. He condemned sin in the flesh means you aren't that sin. You aren't that sin. It's a chain that's maybe getting unraveled still, but you aren't that. And ultimately, you won't be that and you won't struggle with it. And why did Jesus do all this? Why did he come to condemn sin in, sin in the flesh? Well, we get to verse 4. In order that... The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. This is really good, good news. Jesus didn't just, he didn't just condemn sin in the flesh so that you could stop sinning. 
He came to condemn sin in the flesh so that you could start doing something. You could start doing what God made you do in the, in the first place was he, that, that you could actually fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Like he actually came to empower us. This is the great part. See, justification, again, as long as Romans just stays in a head thing, well, at least I'm in right standing with God even as I struggle, that is, that's really good news already. But this is where it starts. This in verse 4 of chapter 8 is where the rubber starts to hit the road, that he died to set you free from sin so you could actually begin to live out what he calls you to live out to. It, it, it will actually change your life. Now, I know a lot of people when we read in order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us, we read that we're not too excited because most of us don't think of the law as an exciting thing. We think of the law as it's just a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. So Jesus condemned sin in the flesh so that now I'm empowered to do a bunch of do's and don'ts. Wow, super exciting. Way to go, Chris. Way to go, Paul. Way to go, Holy Spirit, right? But the thing you have to understand here is we have a, a, a total misunderstanding. When Paul says, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, we have a total misunderstanding of what the requirement of the law is. We think of the law as a bunch of do's and don'ts, but I want you to notice that the word requirement there is not plural. It does not say, Paul does not say that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh so that you and I could fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law. It doesn't say requirements. It says requirement, singular, not plural. So what is the righteous requirement of the law? Right? That's the question. What is the righteous requirement of the law? Well, a couple of years ago, I remember I was reading my devotions, and uh, I was just going through, happened to be going through Romans 8 at that time, and I was reading this, the righteous requirement of the law, and I just remember it was one of those Holy Spirit moments, right? You know, sometimes you just get those in your, in your devos, and something you've read a thousand times before suddenly comes, up, comes alive. You have a thought. You start looking up things. And I suddenly had this thought. I need to look up Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. And I, it's not that I got numbers. It's not like I just got, look up Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. I, I knew what was in Deuteronomy 6. That's why I went there, okay? But it just had this thought, check out Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. And here's what it says in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this is the law. Remember Deuteronomy 6. This is the heart of the law. In fact, the Jews held this passage to be the most important passage uh, in the law. Okay? It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus came along later in the Gospels and reaffirmed this passage as being the most important commandment, central commandment in the law. And I remember that day, suddenly, I mean, it didn't seem, maybe it doesn't seem that groundbreaking to you, but some of these hard things, these shifts, right? I remember being utterly grabbed and excited in my devotions that day because suddenly I realized I had always read Romans 8 verse 4 as Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, so now I can do all the do's and don'ts. That I can now finally do all the do's and don'ts of the scripture. And I realized it doesn't say I'm now empowered to do all the do's and don'ts. It said I'm empowered to do the righteous requirement of the law. What is the righteous requirement of the law? It's not a do and don't. It's love God wholeheartedly. It's love God wholeheartedly. Now that, suddenly, I had just hope, just absolutely welling up in me because I don't know if you're like me, but I often feel like loving God wholeheartedly is such a distant thing, it's not even possible. Do you ever feel like that? Like so often we struggle with with, with apathy, with indifference, with worldliness, 
And isn't it true that I think a lot of us, we feel like, I could never be wholehearted for God. I can never really love him. But and isn't it true that on the other side, on the one side, we feel like I'll never be able to love God. Like to really love him like that, our hearts just feel cold. In fact, we don't even know what to do with our hearts sometimes. We can believe something in our heads. We don't know how to stir our hearts to really love God. The law says we're supposed to love him passionately. For most of us, I think most of us here today actually want to love God passionately. I mean, I think most of us, there's times in our life, right? Isn't it true? There's times in our life we can go back to, you know, maybe I was at a set-free retreat or an empower retreat or a special worship uh, night or maybe it was a, a message that particularly spoke to me or something. But we all have, if we go back in our memories, if you've walked with God with, for any amount of time, we can go back and we fo- can find these places in our lives where we felt love for God. Isn't that true? And isn't it true that those are the best times in our lives? Like, isn't it true? Those, those moments in your life, and I hope all of you have at least a couple of those somewhere in your life, in your past, but sometime where you just felt God's closeness and you felt his nearness to some extent. And isn't it true that in those moments when you feel wholehearted for God, isn't it true that that's heaven? That's heaven. And we wish we could just keep that going, don't we? Okay? But those are the moments that are the most precious when I feel like I'm not holding anything back and I just love Jesus and I'm going for him all out. Those are, that's heaven. And by the way, that is what it will be like in heaven because we were made to love him that way. And that is the way to feel the most amount of joy and the most amount of life is to be wholehearted for Jesus. That is everything. Well, here is the awesome promise of Romans 8 verse 4, that the spirit is in you, not to just help you do a bunch of do's and don'ts, but to actually transform your heart so you can come to a place where you can be absolutely wholehearted in love with Jesus, to be totally sold out for him, which is life. And that he's actually moving you towards that. And of course, not just with love for God, but also with love for people. Here's Jesus. I referred to this just a couple of minutes ago, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. And Jesus commenting on the law, he said this, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So think about that. All of the law and the prophets hang on love. But how often do we not just feel dried out? Isn't it true? How often do we feel, even sometimes when we're doing the do's and don'ts, sometimes we can do the do's and don'ts and still feel dry. Isn't it true? We just feel dry. We feel empty. We feel hopeless. We feel anxious. But the law actually wasn't ever meant to be a bunch of do's and don'ts. It was supposed to be about love, that, we could, that it's pointing us to a life where I love God and I love people and I'm full of love. When I'm full of love, I'm also full of joy. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit and it all comes out of love. So Romans 8 verse 4 is an immensely awesome promise because it goes beyond the brain. It goes beyond, I've set you free to do a bunch of do's and don'ts. Well, doing do's and don'ts can still feel very empty. What Jesus condemned, he condemned sin in the flesh and put his spirit in us so that he's moving us towards this. We can get to a place in our hearts where we can actually feel love and live love and be wholeheartedly in love with God and to love people which is actually what we were made for and where the greatest joy is. And Romans 8 verse 4 is the promise that he is taking us there. And if we'll pursue him, he'll do this. Now, and some of you might be sitting there thinking and you're, and you're maybe going, well, it's all well and good for you to kind of cherry pick a couple of verses, you know, Matthew, Deuteronomy, and tell us that's what Paul's talking about 
in Romans 8 verse 4, but is that really what Paul means when he says the righteous requirement of the law, that the Spirit is in you in order that you can fulfill that, that you can actually have a heart filled with love? And the answer is yes. We're going to get there in a few weeks, but in Romans chapters 12 and 13, Romans 12 and 13 and 14 as well, Paul gets the practical application of the book of Romans, all these wonderful theological truths, and he gets the practical application. And in those three chapters, he talks a lot about love. I just want to show you uh, uh, one passage here, three verses. And Paul says this. So this is in the same letter to the Romans. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has what? Fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul understands the fulfilling of the law to be, have a heart full of love. And in Romans 8, 4, he says that Jesus died so that the right, and put his spirit in you and condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law, which is love, could actually be fulfilled in you. Your heart can be touched. It does not need to remain apathetic and dead forever. That's an incredible, incredible promise, which means we now have a choice. We now have a choice. Before you gave your life to Christ, you were held in sin's grasp. It was not possible for you to become a loving person. It was impossible. It was impossible for you to receive love from God or to be wholeheartedly in love with God. It was impossible for you to become anything but a selfish, self-centered person because you were held by this beast, sin. But Jesus cut the arms and the tentacles, and yes, you're still tangled, and you have problems, and you have struggle, and you've got mud, but you're on your way out now. And he put his spirit in you to make it possible. It's now in the realm of possibility for you to become a wholehearted, loving, full of joy person. It's not going to happen instantaneously, but now as you begin to pursue him, you pursue him not from a place of my identity is I'll never love, I'm always dry, I'm just apathetic, and you have all these identity things of I'm not this and I'm not that and I'm no good and I'll never be that. Now you come from a place of I've been put in right standing with God, his spirit is in me, it is inevitable. It is inevitable that if I pursue him, he will pull me into love. He will transform my heart. He'll even bring my feelings more and more into line with that, that I can feel love and feel joy over time as I pursue him. Love is now in the realm of possibility for each and every one of us. Now imagine if, imagine if, and I finish with this, imagine if when you were a young person, and we all have, you know, when we're young, you have dreams, right? I want to, you know, for the guys, I want to be a professional hockey player, baseball player. For the girls, I want to be a professional musician or, you know, whatever, some kind of a star, a movie star or an astronaut or whatever, okay? Imagine if when you were a young person, okay, God came to you and he said, what would you like to be more than anything else? And you told him and then he gave you the talent to be that. Like he just said, here you go, bloop. You just went from being a couch potato to having the talent to be the best hockey player that ever lived. Or you just went from being, you know, someone who struggles with math to, you know, you're a person now, you have the ability to be the, the most amazing astronaut who ever lived or whatever, right? And he just, and he put it in you, okay? Now, knowing that he had put that in you and that you could only succeed, if you, if you would just practice and you would apply yourself, you would succeed. Would you throw yourself into it? Absolutely you would. 
I mean, if you don't have any chance to be the best hockey player ever, you're probably just going to not, you're not going to practice that much and you're, you're probably going to leave it and you're going to go get a job and just do something else, right? But if God comes to you and says, I'm going to put this talent in you, you have the talent to be the best. You're just going to have to apply it. You're going to have to practice. You're going to have to work at it. But the, if you do, it's inevitable you'll end up on top. Would you not be motivated to go 100% all out to pursue that goal? You would, wouldn't you? Okay, now think about this. God has put his spirit in you. He has. And he has said that that spirit is full of love and will take you to being wholeheartedly in love and passionately in love and purity and holiness and all that. All you have to do is pursue him. It's inevitable. If you fall, and here's the thing, you're playing with house money. It's a no-lose proposition. If in your pursuit of this you fall, you're justified. There's no condemnation. So you can't lose. All you have to do is pursue this spirit. Holy Spirit, I'm coming after you again today. I struggled yesterday, but I'm coming after you again today. And if you pursue him, it is inevitable that you will end up wholehearted and full of love and full of the fruit of the, fruit of the Spirit. Would you be motivated to pursue him? That's the question. Because that's actually the reality. So here's what I want us to do to finish. We're going to write out a prayer to Jesus. So you can, you can write that out on your cell phone so you can pull that out. I know we turned, told you to turn it off earlier. Now you just turn it on, okay? Um, you can pull out a response card. You can pull out a journal, piece of paper on your hand, whatever. There's pencils in the seats. There's a piece of paper. But I want you just to pull out a piece of paper, a cell phone, something. And I want us just to write out a prayer to Jesus based on this truth. His spirit in, is in us. And he has justified us. I want you just to write out this prayer. I'm going to give you a second to just, just write out the words. I think there's something about writing out the words. And I'm going to pray for you and we'll sing one final worship song. But I want you just to write out this prayer and then fill in the blank with whatever it is you want to fill in the blank. Father, thank you for justifying me. Now I ask you to transform me. I want to be, and you just write in the blank. What, what is it your heart just desires? I want to become a, a loving, affectionate mom. I want to become whatever, pure in this area of my life. I want to become a forgiving wife. I want to become whatever it is in your life that you would... It, maybe you haven't even dared to hope it before this. Like you've just kind of given up on it. Now realizing this truth of Romans 8, you realize His Spirit is in you. His Spirit is in you. And it might not be instantaneous, and it might take a year or two, and there might be struggles, and there might be ups and downs, but if you will pray this prayer to Him and you will pursue Him, He will do it in you because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I believe he's going to answer this prayer that whatever you write down there today, I want to be, and this week, I plan to do this six or seven times because there's more than one thing I want to be. But just for now, what's one thing? I want to be blank. I want to be an understanding, godly dad. I want to be, I want to be free of anger. I want to be free of I want you just to write it down. And when you're done, just close your eyes and just begin to quietly pray that to Jesus. And then 
I want to be. Thank you, Father, for justifying me. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence and power in my life. Now I ask you to transform me. I want to be. We can dream big with God. I want to be healed of this. I want to be set free. I want to be filled with love, wholehearted love for you. I'm going to get you all to stand. Just keep your eyes closed. I just want to pray for you before we worship. Father, many of us have been just completely captivated by hopelessness, We don't feel we can change. The truth that we have been set free by the law of the spirit of life. It's not instantaneous, but we're on a journey and the end is inevitable if we will only seek you. Jesus, I pray that every prayer that was written on a piece of paper on a cell phone here this morning, that you will answer every one. I pray that you would give us promises. I pray that we would begin to sense your spirit moving in our lives. Encourage us that really we are living a supernatural life. It doesn't always feel supernatural, but it is supernatural. And I pray that you would fill us more and more and more with your Holy Spirit's love and goodness and purity and power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.